0: My name is Robert. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And let me get all set up here. Uh, It is good to uh, be here. I I really appreciate Daniel uh, extending the invitation in Austin for uh, for allowing me to be here tonight. Um, As a recovered alcoholic, uh, my last drink was uh, April 25th, 1986, and uh, that is due to a a loving God who I found out is crazy about me. Uh, great sponsorship, uh, working the 12 steps of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and going to meetings. I was telling um, a couple of the men before the meeting started that uh, there's really nothing different I do today than I did back in 1986 when I, when I first got here. Uh, the only thing that's different is I sponsor individuals in the beginning, obviously. You know, obviously it says in the big book that you can't transmit something that you haven't got. Uh, and I didn't have a lot back then. Uh, but thank goodness there were, there were men who had a lot and were willing to share with me, obviously what I, what I needed the most. And that was uh, a place to go. You know, I, gosh, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, where it says Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and help with each other that we might solve our common problem to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. In the beginning I would have never admitted that I was alcoholic because to me that was a sign of weakness Um, but I knew how lonely I was. I knew that I was in desperate need of fellowship by the time I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, every significant person in my life had either left me or I left them. There was, there was no one else. I had burned every bridge that was ever constructed, whether it was by me or someone else. I burned my second marriage to the ground. I literally moved my children out of the way so I could go drink. Uh, my mom and dad would no longer talk to me. And if my brothers or sisters knew it was me calling, they would never answer the phone. I was completely unemployable, and and I knew the law was after me. And there was no place left to hide. And I remember on the morning of February 9th of 1986, and I had gone out and I would lost my job, and I would lost $1,000 again with free drinks in Las Vegas. I got some from Las Vegas, by the way. Um, And I remember I was at this place called Davy's Locker. And I woke up in my parents' condo and they were already gone to work. And I looked in the mirror as we do when we're getting ready. And you know those voices you hear where everyone is, I call it like the tabernacle choir. And there's voices in my head and they were all saying in unison, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Because no one understood. I didn't even understand. And this particular morning, there were no voices. It was just silent. And I was convinced then and there that I was going to die. I was 32 years old and I was dead. And there's nothing that scares men and women more than coming face to face with their own mortality. Nothing, for me anyway. And I walked into the living room and for the first time in my life, in a way I admitted I was alcoholic because for some of you youngsters out there, we had this thing called the, the Yellow Pages, right? <laughs> and there was an actual book and, and I looked in under alcoholism and I started calling numbers. And I think I have a problem with alcohol. Their questions were, do you have any money? Do you have insurance? And and then it was, no, no, no. I don't have a job. I don't have insurance. I don't have any money. And it was usually click, 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 click. And I finally found a place in Nevada Treatment Center in Las Vegas. They said, if you can get here with $50 within the next hour, we'll talk to you. And I called my dad up, and my dad had been sober a number of years at the time. And I said, Dad, I need a ride. I didn't have a car, I didn't have a license. And he said, uh, I said, if you get here, I need $50 and I need a ride. And I told him what was going on, and he got over there as quickly as he possibly could. And I got to the Nevada Treatment Center. And that was the beginning of my journey of February 9th of 1986. Um, I would relapse after 71 days and I and I didn't relapse because the program didn't work. I, rel- I relapsed because I didn't work the program. It's very simple um, because you wanted me to be honest and I was incapable of being honest. I was so afraid of honesty because I was convinced that if you knew everything there was to know about me, you wouldn't like me. You know, we say keep coming back, right? But you've never met anyone like me. That was my head. And I, and I realized that if, if you knew what kind of adulterer I was, I mean, what kind of person moves, literally moves their children out of the way so they can go get drunk and hide? and the relationships, and everything that there was about me, the kind of honesty, rigorous honesty, that's necessary in recovery. I'd be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. So I tried to negotiate my level of honesty, and it was kind of like uh, treating recovery like we go into a buffet. You ever go into Sizzler or Chuck-A-Rama, and and we see some salad, and we see some green beans, we see some this, and we see some of that, and we see some of the other, and we negotiate what we want based on what our taste buds would require and how much our stomach volume would be. I mean, that's how we look at recovery. And we look at the stairs and say, I can do this one, I can do that one, but that inventory thing, forget about it. I'm, I'm gonna set that aside. And I'm in step eight and nine, I'm only gonna say I'm sorry to the people that I that I don't think harmed me anyone who harmed me forget about it they're not part of it and and I can take an inventory but I can't be too honest right we negotiate our way around outside the door and I was telling someone earlier it's it doesn't surprise me when people relapse it doesn't surprise me at all because I know this program works I know Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely get themselves to the simple program. It's that simple. And if you think you're different than that, if you think you're unique, it's just terminal uniqueness. And it's kind of like terminal cancer. It's going to kill you. It's just a matter of time. That's why it says, surrender yourself to God as you understood God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Give freely what you find. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Right? Where we come from, though, that's difficult to do. Because many of us, most of us in this room, probably started drinking and using somewhere between 12 and 16 years old. Most of us probably did. And we had been harboring negative emotions and feeling badly about ourselves for a long time. Our first drink was more of a relief than it was anything else. Because so many of us, we believe we're nothing because we came from nothing. And we believe we're always going to be in nothing. And when I took my first drink when I was 14 years old, I was an almost. For the first time in my life, I wasn't somebody, but at least I wasn't nothing anymore. And when you have that sensation of being an almost, it's everything. Again, I knew I was never going to amount to anything at all. But knowing that I could just find this area almost like suspended animation, find this neutral position where I still didn't know how to live but at least I didn't have to die. Just that that, that place suspended. The problem is we repeat this over and over and over again. And if you know anything about medicine there's this, this word called tolerance. Tolerance says that I need more today than I did yesterday to achieve the same result. And I started drinking more, which made me feel worse. So I drank more, which made me feel worse. And this revolving cycle of addiction begins to occur. And the next thing you know, we're at a place and we don't even know how we got there. Says in the big book that we're no longer able to differentiate the true (coughs) From the false. I mean, we're you know, we're the kind of people, it makes perfect sense to us who are we go into a bar and and it says all you can drink ten dollars, and we tell the bartender we'll take two. Because that makes sense to us, right? Our middle name becomes more, but unfortunately that more is is a path to destruction. And we go through relationships, we go through anything we need to go through because what happens At a particular point, the whole idea is to protect the supply. And whether it's methamphetamine, alcohol, crystal, secanol, doesn't really matter what it is, psychedelics, we protect that supply at any cost. Because without that supply, we are nothing. We're no longer an almost. And we become afraid that without that substance, we're going to die. Because for many of us, most of us, it becomes breath. If you ever asked me to stop breathing, I would say, are you crazy? If I stop breathing, I'll die. Makes perfect sense. If we stop using, if we stop drinking, we will die. We're convinced of that because we don't know how to live without being medicated, right? And this goes on and on and on and on. You know, I was telling some of, the, some of the men before the meeting, I dropped out of high school when I was 18 years old, on my birthday. It was January 3rd of uh, 1972. I was gonna graduate in May of that year. I could have just shown up and still graduated from high school. But it says in the big book, lack of power, that was our dilemma. Right? So I'm looking for power in everywhere I possibly could. So I go into the register's office and I say I'm dropping out of high school and they said, you can't do that. And I produced my driver's license that I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old today. you know. And there's nothing more dangerous than an alcoholic who's angry. Because now, not only did I have the physical allergy to alcohol and the propensity to drink, Now I was mad because I was put in a situation that I didn't want to be in, and that adage of, I'll show you, I'll kill me. It's kind of like resentment. Resentment doesn't ever harm the person you're resentful for, but it it does damage to me on a regular basis. And so I would find myself beginning the pattern of leaving everything I possibly could leave and justifying it. So I went into the Air Force only to be kicked out of the Air Force. Fortunately, they were very nice to me. I got a general discharge, inability to adjust to military life. And the word military was very interesting because you could have just said inability to adjust to life and you would have been right. And here I was, I was still 18 years old. You know, so, so then I decided, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go back up to Oregon, where I didn't want to be anyway, because now I was back in Southern California. I'll go back up to Oregon and, and start dating this girl that I had been dating because that's what is going to fix me. So I go back up to Oregon and I end up getting married because that's going to work. you know when you come from places like me and you don't know how to have a relationship anyway, when you're your own higher power, you know anything outside of you is is always going to fail, right? And so one thing after another, after another, after another, job after job after job, location after location after location, relationship after relationship after relationship, and I think I'm fine. I think my problem is you. I think my problem is you telling me I have a problem. And this goes on and on and on and on. And the fact that I'm not a memory, I didn't pass away years ago through addiction or the consequences of, is a miracle I just don't understand. But on this morning of February 9, 1986, when I couldn't continue to drink, but I didn't know how to stop. You know, and it doesn't matter how much we drank or what we drank. What matters is what did alcohol do to me? And that's what's most important and that's what we have to look at. What did did alcohol answer for us? The short answer is it didn't answer anything, but what it did was it kept us from blowing our brains out. Because if it wasn't for a substance that gave me this point that told me Everything was going to be okay when nothing was. The only thing left to do was to go die. And we've heard it before, and I'll say it again. It wasn't that I wanted to die. It was just I didn't know how to live. Life had become so painful for me. I, I, I couldn't do anything without realizing the failure I had been. You know, we talk about truth, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. You know, there's a truth at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the lights are out, and no one else is there. But you and your thoughts about you. And that's when we know. We would never admit it, because admitting I have a problem, I'm now responsible to do something about it. That's why it's so important. And my name is Robert, and I'm an alcoholic. I admit my faults, right? To God and to my fellows, right? That's what it says in the big book. But prior to that, I would admit that I knew who I was. At that, you know, when it's just a term, three o'clock in the morning, the lights are out. It's just, we picture ourselves in that moment when we're just alone with ourselves. We know. We know, we would never admit it, but we know what the truth is. But to admit the truth means, now I'm going to take responsibility for it. And we're not capable of being responsible. Because responsible takes honesty, and honesty is the furthest thing that we could ever, have, we could ever be or ever have. You know, even before Alcoholics Anonymous back in 1985, I lived in Las Vegas. Like I said, I remember going to Gamblers Anonymous, you know, because again, protecting the supply, that's what we do. And I knew gambling was an issue. I thought if I could just get my gambling under control, maybe the alcohol would gonna get under control as well. And I tried that for a while, and my alcoholism got worse. I started drinking more at home, started drinking and so cause I wasn't drinking in the bar anymore. At the quarter slot machines or keno or what have you, uh, that I was playing computer poker, and and the drinking got worse, and it got in different places than it wasn't before. My so my alcoholism, my drinking, was actually compounded. And you know, to a large degree, people would ask me, "How did you get sober in Las Vegas?" Well, how do you get sober in Rupert? You know. I remember moving to Southern California back in uh, 1987, and I would go to a meeting over in Fullerton Olano Club in California, and they would ask for out-of-town visitors, and and, uh, I would say, you know, my name is Robert, I'm from Las Vegas, and people would come up to me after the meeting and say, how'd you get sober in Vegas? You know, I was still pretty new, a year and a half, two years sober, and I thought it was like a trick question, right? And I would say, well, how'd you get sober here? And they would say, well, you know, and, and I'd realize that's how we get sober in Las Vegas. And that's how you get sober here, right? The 12 steps, the plan of recovery, you go to meetings, you, you, you maintain a degree of sponsorability where you have a sponsor and you work with that sponsor. The, the things are the same. But I couldn't get there. Because again, it demands rigorous honesty. And I could not be honest. Because where so many of us come from, the more you know about me, the more vulnerable I become. You take that which I think I need to exist. And I have lost so much already, losing more was not an option for me. So we cling to things that are killing us. And we think that is the same way, the the proper way to, to go through life. And all the while we're dying we're dying, we're dying. And we know we're dying, we just can't stop because we don't know how to live. Fortunately, in, in Las Vegas, was really strong in Las Vegas as it is here in Salt Lake City and so on and so forth. And the minute I started going, you know, the minute my life began to change. But again, it was only gonna change to the degree of my own honesty. So I started going to meetings and, and I would meet these, these men and women who were happy and sober at the same time, which was unbelievable to me. I didn't know those two could exist side by side and yet they were. And, and yet again, that whole honesty thing got in the way. And as the honesty was set aside, unbeknownst to me, the pain grew and grew and grew. And as I was sharing with some men earlier uh, during the barbecue, um, Father Martin in Chalk Talk, if you've never listened to it, go to YouTube, find Father Martin, find a Chalk Talk and listen to this guy. He said it's a natural human response to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. Right? So if it's cold outside, you put on a jacket. If if you have a headache, you take an aspirin. Uh, If it's raining, you use an umbrella. But what do you do... If that which you are uncomfortable with is you, you you no longer have the ability to live in your own skin. And alcoholism is a is a is an itch that demands to be scratched. Period. It's like having a rash. Eventually, you're going to scratch that thing, or you're going to do whatever it takes to get over the rash. There's no there's no two ways about it. And it became necessary. And I only say this because I wasn't willing to be honest. So it became necessary that I go drink again. And I remember my dad found out I relapsed. First thing he did was take me to a motel called the Rhett Butler Motel on 15th and Fremont in in Las Vegas. And he looked at me and he paid a week at the motel and he said, your mother and I aren't going to watch you die. My dad. He knew his son was dead (coughs) and he was not going to watch me die. And my dad was really bigger than me and he turned around and he walked away. And you know when someone's shoulders are shrugging and you know they're crying, I would find out later that my dad was just weeping because he would never see me again alive. And I sat in this hotel room and I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost. I, I knew I couldn't stay sober. So if I could just be an almost again, I would be okay. And I went across the street to the bar, the Sundowner Saloon and tried to find that right combination of scotch and beer and, and, I, and I just couldn't do it. And I sat up in my hotel room for five days and just tried to get as drunk as I could to be an almost. And then I remembered Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started remembering the people that I had met along the way. And I thought, "I, I can't die. Maybe I'm too much of a coward, I don't know. Maybe I just wanted to live and I didn't know how. But I thought, you know, I can't drink anymore and I can't die. I think I'll go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that morning, April 25th of 1986 is when I came back to the rooms. So there was a little club called The Turning Point in Las Vegas. And I used to go to this late lunch bunch meeting, uh, 1230 every day, Monday through Friday. And, and I thought I could just sneak in the back room, right, and just be undetected and be there and just wait for the next meeting to start. Kind of like George Costanza who quits his job and then acts like he didn't quit. I don't know if you ever saw that episode of Seinfeld, but pretty funny. Uh, So I thought I could just sneak back in the room. And wouldn't you know it, my sponsor, Max B, was there waiting for me after a meeting that he never went to. Talk about a divine appointment. So here I am, face to face with Max and feeling guilty, but it wasn't based on anything he did or said. He looked at me and he said, are you ready? And I said, Max, I, I, I'm ready, I really need this. He said, you don't, you don't understand. And, and I said, well, Max, I, I really want this. He said, no, this is not a program for people who want it. It's not a program for people who need it. This is a program for people who will do it. It says in the big book, If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. There are a lot of people in this room who really want this program. I don't doubt it for a second. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in this room who won't be sober next week. We have to be willing to go to any length to get it. And Max and I discussed that and we got on our knees and we did the third step prayer. And that was the beginning of me being honest. And I began to reveal myself to Max in a way that I'd never shared with anyone before. And that wouldn't be enough for me. I thought I could be a little bit more honest, but not completely honest, not painstaking. Says if you're painstaking about this phase of our development, you'll be amazed before you're halfway through. I was kind of honest, but not in a painstaking way. I wasn't ready to reveal myself to the way that we need to reveal ourselves to get through these, this pain so I didn't have to go medicate anymore. And I remember about six months sober and I was playing with the steps and by this time, Max had moved out of town. Jack Fisher had become my sponsor who was actually my sponsor for 33 years until he died of cancer. I've never been in AA without a sponsor. I had a sponsor my first week who just celebrated 38 years of sobriety? My sponsor today has 43 years of recovery. Talked to a guy on the phone today who was instrumental in my recovery. He's got celebrated 39 years in January. So I come from a lineage of uh, people who've been sober. It, it says in uh, in uh, Roman numeral 17 uh, that it is vital one alcoholic working with another that is is necessary for permanent recovery. I believe in permanent recovery, I believe we can die <coughs> sober. I was telling some fellows before the meeting, I will probably die of old age. Not too shabby for a guy who wrecked his life the way we wreck our lives, right? I'm 69 years old, I will probably die. Just in a hospital room, going to sleep, that's what I plan anyway, right? Unless I get hit by a bus somewhere between now and then. And, 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 and that's the program of recovery. So. But, but I came face to face with how dangerous. Do you ever do that? Do you realize how dangerous we really are to ourselves, to our own well-being? And it sort of scared me into the steps. And I went to my sponsor, Jack, and I said, Jack, what do I do? Because now now I'm afraid that if I relapse, I'm dead. I'm not making it back. Not like it was in the beginning. I knew too much. I couldn't, my ego wouldn't allow me to come back. I would have died out there instead of coming to tell you one more time that I burnt my life to the ground. And my sponsor, Jack, very big on service, looked at me and he said, Bob, I've never known anyone who was actively involved in service who has relapsed? And that's true to this day. The key word is actively. Once we stop becoming active, all bets are off. It's like expecting to go up a hill without pedaling. There's this thing called gravity that prevents that from occurring. Try it. Try to try to go up a hill without stepping on the accelerator. Try going up a hill without pedaling, you can't do it because of gravity. And you can't stay sober without service. And this has been my experience. And I said, Jack, what do I do? And he said, there's an ashtray. Back in those days, you could smoke in the rooms, right? So we'll start cleaning ashtrays. We'll start you out slow. So I started cleaning ashtrays. Then I started making coffee. Then he called me up and said, hey, we have this 12-step call. We need to go on. There's a drunk in a hotel room that needs our help. Let's go. Service, 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 service. And I began to work the steps in a way like, like, like a boy would discover candy. And you had all this available to you. And it didn't cost a thing. Matter of fact, it would cost you if you didn't take the candy. And I began looking at the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with what Chuck Chamberlain would say, a new pair of glasses. Everything became different. And nine months, I told you about my dad saying, I'm not going to watch my son die. Remember, I was nine months sober and I had my mom and dad over for Christmas. And my dad came up and gave me a hug. And 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 I still have this watch to this day that he gave me. And, and my dad passed away in, in uh, 1988, and he said, you know, Bobby, mom and I used to worry about you, but we don't worry anymore. You know? This was a dad I'd grown up with who was alcoholic, who got sober, who saw his son dead, wasn't going to watch him die, and now he didn't worry anymore. That's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began working the steps and working with others in a way that just revolutionized my life. You know, I, I encourage you, and I, and I know we have men in this room who are, might be your first week here. My friend Daniel just celebrated six months and probably individuals in this room who've been sober longer, various lengths of sobriety, the the great thing is, and, and again, I was speaking with someone earlier. We have a common solution, and it, and it says that. And I'll read this to you. In uh, there's a solution on page 17 of the big book. Before I close, there's no difference between you and me. You know, and and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and. And and not to split hairs with you, AA is for people who lost the ability to control their drinking. You know, that's a different topic. But we all come in trying to fix something that appears to be broken with something that doesn't work. Does that make sense? Something that appears to be broken with something that doesn't want to (coughs) work. At best, all alcohol and drugs do is sort of biased time, right? In the forward to the first edition, it says, we are 100 men and women who, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show you how we have recovered is precisely why we wrote this book. It says, we hope this book is so convincing, listen to the words, that no further authentication is necessary. And yet, we set it aside as if it won't work for me. You know, and they told me early on, the program of recovery is like a giant wrench that'll fit any nut who walks in. (laughs) And that's true, because we're pretty wacky when we get here, you know. And, and we don't know, and this is the thing that's really important. We don't know how unmanageable our life is until we get sober. The minute we think it's unmanageable, we just drink or use. And it becomes manageable once again. Because now we're in almost one more time, Right? We understand the depth of our insanity when we stop medicating. That is one of the reasons we need the fellowship as much as possible. You know, the fellowship is not recovery and recovery is not fellowship. They are a combination. It's kind of like mercy and grace. They're, they're distinctively different, but they work in tandem to help support each other. It's kind of like a higher power. It doesn't really matter what your higher power is. It matters what your higher power does. That's where we agree. Your higher power may be Yahweh. It may be one of the seven manifestations of Bahá'í high faith. It may be a sunset. It may be a sunrise. It may be mountains. It may be a... Uh, a three hundred year old oak tree, or redwood, it it may be uh, Yahweh, it may be anything, and it and it doesn't matter in AA. But does that higher power want you to be happy, joyous, and free? Because it says in the Big Book, we are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And if we're not on that path, is it because we have a higher power, probably self, that doesn't allow me to be happy, joyous, and free because I'm still upset with you? Is my sobriety still outside of me or is it something inside of me? Right? Does my ego, has it not surrendered enough to say, Maybe I don't know better than whoever that higher power is. It says, surrender yourself to God as you understood God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. We, we surrender with a loaded AK. That's where we go. We, we're going to surrender, but we're going to surrender under our terms. Isn't that our mentality? I'm going to surrender, but I'm going to tell you how the surrender is going Because at the end of this surrender, I'm going to win. That's not surrender. That's called negotiation. And if we were good negotiators, we wouldn't be in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Or N.A. or O.A. or G. or S.A. I qualify for them all. And so we come into this program and we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Unmanageable. By the way, there's no and there. When we get into step two, and and by the way, to the degree that we do step one is to the degree that we do step two. It is absolutely impossible to do steps two through 12 if we negotiated step one. If you read the 12 and 12, and I recommend that you do, the big book is is obviously the Bible of recovery from my standpoint. But the 12 and 12, in step one, Bill says that who likes to admit complete defeat? Practically no one. And then down in the bottom of the page, it says any life we do have, this is a paraphrase, will be precarious at best. Anything that we do outside of compete, I think he calls it humiliation it 's what happens to me when I get totally humble before you and before God where I have no secrets because we 're only as thick as our secrets, and if I want to be well, I expose it all what do you want to know I have no I have no secrets because I know a secret from you is a secret from God and a secret from God in it inhibits my ability to get well. And, and I'm also not helping you because if I can be honest with you, you can be honest with me. And maybe you've been struggling with honesty for a while and you say, man, Robert admitted that? Well, if Robert admitted that, I can admit that. And you become feeling better about yourself because the things that we were harboring that caused us anxiety and pain and discomfort and the need to medicate, they're relieved. You know, when you relieve pressure out of an Instapot or whatever, you can now take the lid off. I use an Instapot a lot for my hard-boiled eggs and things and cooking down beef. And you know, it's impossible to get that lid off. Not only that, it's dangerous. Remember remember an old radiator cap? Back when we had non-sealed radiators, there was a button on top and you could press the button and let out the steam. And once you let out the steam, then the radiator cap was safe to take off. Prior to that, you would get burned. I mean, it was dangerous, it could blow up in your face. But you let that steam out, everything got equal, and you could take the cap off, and there was no issue whatsoever. That's what being honest will do for you. So we, we're honest in step one, where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol, and our life had become unmanageable. Step two is an open-mindedness. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And if we didn't think we we're insane, well, we need to go back and visit step one where we see how our life had become unmanageable. And, and, and if I think my life is unmanageable, maybe I need to turn the management of that life over to something else. So we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, and then we become willing to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. That is that willingness. And those are three steps of just honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. The first action step is step four. We begin clearing out all the, all the things that have, we've been harboring. And step four is necessary to becoming well. Your closet never gets clean until you open the door and pull everything out, examine it. I'm, I'm a businessman and I know the value of taking an inventory and many of you are businessmen and women out there, and you would never consider running a business without taking an inventory. That would just be foolish. How do you know what you have if you don't know what you have? So we take a fearless and moral inventory of ourselves, resentment, fear, and sexual situations. Then we admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact, not the nature of our wrongs, but the exact nature of our wrongs and we begin a new freedom. That opens the door to freedom because again, we're only as sick as our secrets. And until I begin letting those things out, it's impossible for new things to get in, right? Until I clear out the junk, it would be foolish to to try to put good fruit over bad fruit because the bad fruit will rot the good fruit. The good fruit won't make the rotten fruit good The the rotten fruit will make the good fruit rotten. But that's what we try to do. So, So we, in six and seven, we are asking to remove defects of character and then we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And then we're ready for another house cleaning in step eight and nine. And you know, there's a seven step prayer that prepares us for eight and nine. And you know, what's really great about eight and nine Is that individuals don't need to accept our amends for step nine to be completed? Did you know that? You don't need to tell me that you received my apology. I just have to make the apology. I just have to say to you, I'm so sorry. For who I was and what I did and how I damaged your life, and be specific if possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, right? Not 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 a bad bit of advice. So we admit that and we come more free and more clear. I have brothers and sisters, they haven't forgiven me. I wish they would, but that's not up to me. That's they own that. What I own is I'm sorry that I harmed you. I'm not this person anymore. I hope you forgive me and, and just leave it alone. Any more than, and, and I mean this in the nicest way, I don't need you to stay sober for me to stay sober. I drove up from Salt Lake, I loved the drive, loved every minute of it, it's good getting out and, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, that's, my respo- that's all I'm responsible for. What you do with what I say is what you do with what I say. You have to own everything, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. You can agree with me, you can disagree, That's really up to you. right? I remember my sponsor, Jack, and he was a dear friend. He's who I called when my dad died. In 1988, I was going to visit my dad, August 1st of 1988, and I was managing a Black Angus restaurant in Southern California, and um, drive to Las Vegas, and I go, drive up to my dad's condo in North Las Vegas, off of Cheyenne in the 15th, if you're familiar with Vegas at all. And my dad's car was there, so I knocked on the door, expecting my dad or mom to answer, and nobody answered the door. And I stood there and knocked for a minute. Didn't, you know, I'm not suspecting anything at all. And a neighbor comes around the corner and uh, says, uh, someone got taken to the hospital. That's all I know, and that's that. Then my sister-in-law, Annie, my, my brother and her, owned a condo in the same complex, came around and said, Dad had a heart attack and it doesn't look good. They're at North Las Vegas Hospital. So I drive over to the hospital and I ended up burying my dad instead of spending a week with my dad. And, And Jack, who was my sponsor, I called him right away and said, Jack, my dad died and I don't know what to do. And Jack and I got together and he helped me through and 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 I and I sort of challenged God that day and I said God if, if you can get me through this week of burying my dad and my dad and I we were becoming really good friends I mean he was he went from not want to watch his son die to he couldn't wait to kill me in cribbage one more time you know we became really good friends and I'm forever grateful for that but now he was dead so I said God if you get me through this week sober I will know I never have a reason to drink or use again. And and my sponsor was there for me. The program of alcohol, I knew what to do. You know, I was in a meeting last night and we were talking about loss and 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 turmoil and 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 faith. And and honestly, I've never lost anything. And I buried sisters and I buried my mom and I buried my dad and I buried my My father-in-law, you know, I've I've lost people in recovery, but I knew what to do. There was some discomfort, there were some challenging moments, but nothing like getting over the trauma of your own daughters calling someone else dad, and there's (gasps) nothing you can do about it. Nothing. And you're sober. That's why we have to clear away the records of our past because if we don't, it will kill us in sobriety. So then we get to step 10. And and I love the wisdom of my sponsor, Will. Matter of fact, when my sponsor, Jack, I'll tell you this, and why I'm so strong in, in recovery to this day. I went and I was talking to my sponsor, Jack. He was on his deathbed dying of cancer in January of 2019. And I, and I went to Jack and I said, Jack, what do I tell him? Because I knew he was dead and it would be the last time I saw him. I said, Jack, what do, what do I tell him when you die? And in his cancer ridden voice, I got real close to him, he said, Bob, tell him it works. And I went down into the parking lot and I began to cry because I love my sponsor as much as I've ever loved any person. And I immediately got on the phone to Slow Will, who's a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic, by the way. And he knew Jack. He was friends of Jack in, in Las Vegas. He lived in Missouri at the time. And I said, Will, Jack's dying and, and, I, and I just need you to be my sponsor. Will you be there for me? And, that's, and it's so important that you know that Because I would never tell, Daniel and I are very close. Daniel is sponsored by someone I sponsor. And I would never tell Daniel to do anything that I don't do. So when I look at Daniel and say, are you listening to your sponsor? It's only because I listen to my sponsor. Are you working the steps? Only because I work the steps. Are you reading your big book? Only because I read your big book. When was the last time you went to a meeting? I've gone to four meetings this week, right? We continue to do. And that's where step 10 really comes into play. And I know it's premature for most of you in this room, but my, my sponsor, Will, says, we, we, we continue to take our personal inventory, and when we are wrong, promptly admitted it. Will says, if we clear away the wreckage of our present, it doesn't become the wreckage of our past. So now I'm even, it's level ground. And, you know, when I, when I drove in here tonight, I saw all the, all the fields growing various produce, corn, and it looked like cabbage or something, something under the ground, maybe lettuce, I don't know. But I saw a lot of combines, right? There was a lot of farm equipment, and that farm equipment just doesn't sit there any more than the crops harvest themselves. There's people every day who get on those combines, get on those harvesters. They start the engine up. They go back to the rows. They start cleaning. Not only are they prepping for their next, their next uh, season, the next plant, but they're clearing away the wreckage of their present. And they're getting it ready. They're readying the soil. And that's the same thing we do in Recovery. So I continue to take a personal inventory, and when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. The big book says we do that as a daily house cleaning, we do it as a periodic, a daily house cleaning, a semi-annual and an annual house cleaning. Some of us like to go on retreats, which reminds me of my humanity. How frail. See, I have a spiritual malady as a chronic alcoholic. It's never safe for me to consume any alcohol to any degree in any form whatsoever. But if, they phenom- if I don't drink, the phenomena of craving never occurs. So what else is there? There's a mental obsession. The mental obsession is fueled by a, what is called a spiritual malady. That's why it says, see to him, see to it that your relationship with him is right. In how it works, it says, A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives be that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and see that God could and would if he were sought. It's not maybe God can. We, I am the common denominator. God could and would if he were sought. If I seek God, God will do what God does, which allows me to be happy, joyous and free. So I do step 10, and it reminds me of my humanity, and my humanity cries out for a power greater than me. I sought through prayer and meditation to improve, right? I already have a relationship with my higher power. I want to improve that conscious contact with God as we understood Him. Praying only, not my ego, but praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. That's what it says in the big book. Who doesn't want power? I want power, but I want God's power because God's power tells me you're important, more important than me. But when you and I get together, man, that's something else. There's this thing called in science, it's called synergy. It's when one component added to another component creates a third more powerful component. It's, it's amazing, it's science, it's, it's irrefutable, that synergy, look it up. And that's what happens when I get with God and God go, tells me to go get with you. Because then in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, right? So contact, contact with God, I carry the message to alcoholics, which is you, and to practice these principles in all our affairs, which is me. I always thought it was about me. It was never about me. It was always about God, you, and me. And as long as I pursue that path, I will, it says in the big book, I will not only get well, I will stay well. I will not only be recovered, I will stay in recovery. I will not only worry about me, but I'll worry about we. You know, our first tradition says... Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. For me to be sober, I need you to be in this room. Whether or not you stay sober, again, you have to own that. We all have to own our personal recovery. But without each other, we have none. Because being apart kept me alone. That's why, again, fellowship, is critical. I'm going to read this one page to you and I'm going to close page 17. And if you're not a student of the big book, you're missing so much. I cannot tell you how I just ordered a new book. AA comes of age. Cause I want to reread it. I have a 12 and 12 as Bill sees it, the big book. I read every AA literature I can get my hands on. Um, I listen to speakers all the time just trying to get a different perspective because I have this thirst. I I no longer have a thirst for alcohol because alcohol was killing me because I'm a chronic alcoholic. I have a thirst of knowing about God and you and how the combination of God, you, and me can give men's life. I told you that I was married twice. I've been married over 34 years now. I have five children, three of which I would have never had if it wasn't for recovery. I have 10 grandchildren, none of which I would have had if it wasn't for recovery. There's not an aspect of my life that isn't significantly improved. You know, I'll go home tomorrow and, and the combination to my automatic door will still be the same. My wife will not have changed it overnight. That wasn't always true. You know, I'd leave the house and those locks would get changed, baby. But not, not, not anymore. I love this page. This is page 17. You will want to fall in love with this page as well, because it tells what happened to you and me. We at Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just, who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to the captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joint escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us, but that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert. I'm alcoholic.